It's 3.40 a.m., August 14th, 1922. In Lakehurst, New Jersey, three shadowy figures patrol the railway tracks. The beams of their flashlights sweep the air. Big rectangular shapes loom in the darkness along a long line of sleeping freight cars. The three men, Frank Peterson, Louis Chasen, and William Ayers, are railroad detectives. Every now and then, they check the padlock on a freight car or look under the cars for signs of entry from below. Everything seems secure and quiet. And then suddenly, Frank Peterson holds out his arm and calls his fellow detectives to a halt. Peterson thinks he hears something. He strains to listen. Maybe it was just his imagination or that old screech owl again. You know, sometimes the bird's cries can sound weirdly human. But no, this definitely is human. There it is again. It's a cry for help. The cry seems to be coming from 3 Union Avenue, a big house on the corner of Railroad Avenue and Union. The ground floor has been given over to two businesses, a taxi firm and a restaurant with a large apartment on the floor above. The men run across the road. They shine their flashlights through a glass-paneled door. There's a dim shape on the floor. It looks like someone hunched over. The men call out to attract the figure's attention. A woman answers them, the same voice as before, repeating her cry for help. Peterson tries the door only to find it's locked. The woman urges them to break it down. Inside, they find the woman at the bottom of a flight of stairs leading to the upper apartment. Her ankles are bound together with packing twine, her hands tied behind her back. Peterson pulls the knots apart with his fingers. A loop of handkerchiefs hangs around her neck, a gag which she's already worked loose. The woman screams hysterically, They shot him! They shot him! They shot him! The detectives try to calm her down. She tells them her name is Ivy, Ivy Guyberson. Slowly, the details of her ordeal emerge. Two burglars broke into the house. One of them tied her up in the living room, while the other went into the bedroom where her husband, William, was sleeping. A moment later, there was a gunshot. And now, William's dead. But maybe she's mistaken. Maybe her husband survived the attack. There's only one way to find out. Frank Peterson takes the stairs in a few swift bounds. The living room is dark. He fumbles for a light switch, expecting the room to be strewn with furniture in the aftermath of a struggle. But it isn't. The thieves must have got what they were looking for without having to ransack the place. He finds the bedroom and switches on the light. Now, as a railroad detective, Peterson's not used to walking in on dead bodies. The cases he investigates are mostly property crimes. Sometimes he comes up against gangsters and the threat of violence looms. But this is something different. He can hardly bring himself to look, but he has to. If for no other reason than to confirm that William Guyberson is actually dead. Sadly, it's pretty obvious that he is.
Now, peering closer, Peterson locates a gunshot wound at the base of the dead man's skull. There's an exit wound under the eye, and Peterson finds a bullet on the bed sheets. He's seen enough. It's time to call the sheriff's office. By dawn, a team of sheriff's deputies and state troopers have taken over the crime scene, while others scour the area, looking for the two attackers. The district attorney, Wilford Jane, is in attendance too. Jane's an ambitious DA, and he quickly realizes that the small town sheriff is way out of his depth. So he makes a crucial decision. He brings in a detective from neighboring Burlington County. But not just any detective. This detective is Ellis Parker, one of the most famous and most successful detectives of the age. Now, you may remember him from the very first episode of Detectives Don't Sleep, the case of the pickled corpse. Well, right now, he's about to begin a case every bit as baffling, and in its own way, equally as bizarre as that one. He's going to need all his skills as an investigator and all his understanding of human psychology to solve it. My name is Mark Dotson. And welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we follow one of the greatest American detectives of the early 20th century, Ellis Parker. Though based in New Jersey, his fame spreads across the world. On the face of it, this seems like an open and shut case of a home intrusion gone wrong. The chief of detectives, Parker, doesn't judge anything merely on the face of it. Who were the two men who broke into the Guyversons' home in the early hours of the morning, terrifying Mrs. Guyverson and leaving her husband dead? Was this a random crime, or were the perpetrators known to the victim? Or is something else entirely going on here? If there's one man who can find the answers to all these questions, it's Detective Ellis Parker from Noiser. This is the story of Not the Crying Sort. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. Born in 1871, Ellis Parker is 51 years old in 1922. Right now, he's at the height of his powers after nearly 30 years as a detective. His track record speaks for itself. 90 arrests, 89 convictions. Well, guess there's always one that gets away. Most often seen with his trademark pipe gripped between his teeth and sporting a Hamburg hat, the gray-haired, mustachioed Parker conforms to most people's idea of a detective. At this point in his career, at least, his reputation is undisputed. It's earned him the nickname of America's Sherlock Holmes. Others call him the sly fox. And in the way he handles the William Guyberson homicide case, he certainly lives up to that second tag. It's still early in the morning when Parker walks through the door of 3 Union Avenue. He gets straight down to work, immediately noticing some lengths of cord on the floor. This must be what Mrs. Guyberson was tied up with. He also finds the gag, a string of ladies' handkerchiefs tied together. Apart from a slight dampness where her mouth had been, 
The handkerchiefs seem clean and freshly ironed. It looks like the burglars used Mrs. Guyverson's own handkerchiefs to gag her. That wouldn't surprise Parker. Crimes like this often involve a degree of improvisation, as things don't always turn out as the criminals expect. All right, now, Parker already knows that two men have been carrying out a spate of burglaries in Ocean County along the Jersey Shore. This fits their M.O. almost exactly. They strike in the middle of the night and tie up anyone who wakes. There's one difference, though. As far as he's aware, the Ocean County pair have never killed anyone. Parker examines the twine used to secure Mrs. Guyverson. Can't say for certain, but it looks to be a lighter gauge than that used by the Ocean County pair. So maybe this was a copycat crime by another outfit. Detective Parker heads upstairs to look for more clues. He walks into the main room and nods to the law enforcement officers who are there already. He spots the sheriff and introduces himself. Common courtesy counts for a lot and the sheriff must be feeling sore about having a big shot detective brought in over his head. Parker assures him that He's here to help in any way he can, but both men know who's in charge now. Detective Parker also talks to the railroad detectives who were first on the scene, asking them to take him through Ivy's account of what happened. Frank Peterson gives him the gist. Mrs. Guyberson woke up when she heard a noise. She got up without disturbing her husband and went into the living room. She was reaching for the light when she felt someone grab her arm. The light came on. She saw two guys. One of them kept her in the living room and tied her up. The other went into the bedroom where William was. Then, in Peterson's words, a second burglar got excited and plugged her husband. Detective Parker can tell. There's something else troubling Frank Peterson. He encourages him to speak up. You know, Chief, Peterson says, it don't look quite good to me. I went over that outer door, and it hasn't got no jimmy marks on it. Detective Parker lights his pipe and thinks for a moment. Then he says to Peterson, well, that may be all right. If it's the regular Ocean County gang, they're key workers. What he means by this is that they use skeleton keys to break into houses they rob. Parker checks with the sheriff that he's got men out looking for the two burglars. The sheriff confirms it. He also lets Parker know that one of the deputies spoke to a witness who had seen William Guyberson arguing with two suspicious-looking men the previous day. Could they be the two deadly intruders? Detective Parker looks around the living room. It's a comfortable space, nicely furnished. By the looks of it, Iversons did all right. Now, Parker's been told that the thieves stole 700 bucks in cash. Allowing for inflation, that's the equivalent of over $12,000 today. Yeah, a lot of money to have lying around the house. The DA has already filled Parker in on the Guyverson's background. Age 35 at the time of his death, William was six years younger than his wife a former restaurant owner from Trenton, New Jersey. He sold that business and moved to Lakehurst in 1912. 
after marrying one of his waitresses, that would be Ivy, or Iva, as she was then known. After the move to Lakehurst, William Guyverson used that money he'd made from the sale of his restaurant to buy a sawmill. Then war broke out. America entered the conflict in 1917, and the impact on Lakehurst was dramatic. Camp Kendrick Military Base was located nearby, and thousands of soldiers flooded in, temporarily boosting the local economy. At which point, William Guyverson made a smart business move, swapping the sawmill for a taxi firm. You see, there was a fortune to be made ferrying servicemen around. And for a time, the money poured in. Now, when the war ended, most of the soldiers left. For William Guyverson, their departure must have meant a considerable loss of income. Then, in 1920, prohibition was introduced across America. It was no longer legal to produce, import, distribute, or sell alcohol. That led to a boom in organized crime. The kind of violence that we associate today with the drugs trade, turf wars, and drive-by shootings sprang up around the illegal trade in hooch. Parker knows that many taxi drivers were recruited into the bootlegging industry, transporting whiskey to speakeasies and private homes in their cabs. He had help thinking that maybe this Guyverson guy was involved too. If so, he would have been mixed up with some pretty rough types. Maybe he'd crossed the wrong person, and this is why he ended up dead. In which case, the burglary may well have been a cover. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I've spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today, but when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows. We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The curious history of your home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. Detective Parker moves into the bedroom. There's a dresser next to the bed. The top two drawers are pulled out. Their contents are in disarray as if someone had rooted through looking for valuables. Clothes are strewn all over a chair, with the pockets turned out. A set of keys lies on the floor. A woman's dressing table nearby appears not to have been touched, apart from a jewelry box which is lying open. There are a few jeweled pens scattered about, too. Now, Parker approaches the bed. Unlike the railroad detectives, Ellis Parker has been in the presence of violent death many times before. It's not that he's gotten used to it, just that he's learned to look beyond the surface horror, to see the subtle clues that'll lead him to the truth. William Guyverson's body is lying on the outside of the bed. Beside him, the mattress bears the impression of another person. 
So Mrs. Giverson had the side next to the wall. Parker notices the gunpowder burns on the pillowcase and on the dead man's neck below the entry wound. There's something else too, something odd about the hair. As soon as he sees it, Parker knows for certain who killed William Giverson. And <laughs> it isn't a couple of burglars or some disgruntled bootleggers. It's time for Detective Parker to head over to the local police station where Ivy Guyberson is waiting to talk to him. This is the first chance Parker's had to get a look at the widow. She's a big, thick-set woman with a kind of face that doesn't give much away. Her expression is more sour than grief-stricken. Now, to be fair, Parker knows that people show grief in different ways, but he's never seen it manifested so, well, coldly before. He goes through Ivy's story with her. She explains that her husband was a heavy sleeper, which was why he didn't wake up when the burglars first came in. She gets to the part where she hears the gunshot. According to Ivy, the burglar she was with called out, What in the hell did you have to shoot him for, Bill? The other burglar answered, He was waking up. Parker asks her to describe the men. He notes down the details she gives him without comment. And no, in answer to his question, she's never seen either of them before. But she continues that after the burglars left, she half rolled and half crawled downstairs, where she managed to slip off the gag and raise the alarm. Later, she went into the bedroom to check what the thieves had taken. The only thing missing, she says, was William's wallet. Then she remembers that on the evening before he was killed, William had stood at the window, counting out his takings for the week, $700, including three $100 bills, which he put in his wallet. Well, the burglars must have been casing the house, seen him flashing his cash, and decided to rob him. Detective Parker nods calmly and reassures her that they're doing everything they can to find the men who killed her husband. He looks steadily into her eyes, scanning her expression for the slightest flicker of emotion. One telltale flinch that might give her away, but there's nothing. Well, two can play at that game, and Detective Parker's poker face is a match for anyone's. You see, Parker doesn't believe a word that Ivy Guyverson said. He's on to her. He knows she's the killer. But he doesn't want her to know he knows. So he lays a trap. He tells her she's free to go. Soon after, he briefs the press, or rather, he misbriefs them. The afternoon editions appear to broadly confirm Ivy's version of events. Burglars murdered taxi man in home, screams one headline. It won't be long before later editions tell a very different story. Detective Parker explains his thinking to the DA. He pretty much smelled a rat the moment he walked through the door. Those ladies' handkerchiefs Ivy was gagged with, all freshly cleaned and nicely pressed. When he'd asked Ivy about them, she admitted they were hers, explaining that she'd left them out on a table where the thieves found them, 
Although he's prepared to accept some level of improvisation on the part of the thieves, this detail just doesn't feel right. He's supposed to believe these guys came with the twine to tie someone up, but didn't bring a gag. As for the twine, it's just too flimsy. He spoke to Frank Peterson, the railroad detective who released Ivy. He said the twine was easy to snap and the knots looked like slip knots that she could have tied herself. Next, there's her description of the men. She told him one was short, the other tall. One was dressed in brown, the other in blue. One had a sharp face, the other had a round face. It's just all too neat. Also, she said it was too dark to tell what color eyes the guy who tied her up had. But apparently, she noticed that his hair was brown and curly, even though he was wearing a cap. Parker's skeptical, to say the least. Then there's the account of what went down when her husband was shot. Parker studied the layout of the apartment carefully. The position of the door means the burglar who was tying Ivy up couldn't possibly have seen into the bedroom. In other words, he couldn't know who fired the shot they heard. And yet, according to Ivy, he called out, what in the hell did you have to shoot him for, Bill? Now, this is a massive assumption to make. From his point of view, all he knew was that he heard a gunshot and hadn't seen anything. He had no idea who'd been shot. A more natural reaction would have been to call out, what the hell's going on in there? And there's even more about Ivy's account. It just doesn't even make any sense. She says she woke up because she heard a noise. Now, hang on. She didn't wake her husband? She went out alone to investigate? It's not impossible, I suppose, but it just doesn't seem likely. Not to Detective Parker, anyway. Also, she's a physically large lady, and she sleeps on the side of the bed nearest the wall. The only way she could have got out of bed would have been by clamoring over her husband. Oh yeah, he's a heavy sleeper. She made a point of telling him that. But really? She didn't disturb him at all? To Detective Parker's mind, that would only make sense if he was already dead. And what about when the burglars grabbed her? Surely she would have cried out then, and that would have woken William. All of this is enough to make Parker suspicious, but none of it's what you might call conclusive evidence of Ivy's guilt. For that, Parker points to the gunpowder marks he found on the victim's neck and on the pillow. They prove that he was shot at close range, with the gun held close to his head or even touching it. The most likely explanation is that he was shot in his sleep. According to Ivy, the gunman said he shot William because he was starting to wake up, which would suggest that the burglar was going about his business looking for things to steal. The question is, why would he go anywhere near the sleeping man if he didn't have to? And yet, if you believe her, he got close enough to William to put a gun against his head. This doesn't make sense. But here's the clincher. One particular detail concerning William's hair that Parker had noticed. What he saw was that the hair around the entry wound had been cut. This wasn't a skillful trim by a barber. 
the hair had just been clumsily hacked away. Now, who would do this, and why? The answer to the first question is the murderer. As for why, it must have been because there was some even more obvious gunpowder burns on his hair. Marks that would have proven beyond a doubt that William was shot from point-blank range. Okay, now, if William's murderer was Bill the burglar, why would he go to the trouble of cutting his hair? When burglars kill, the first thing they do is get the hell out of the house before the cops arrive. No, no. Uh Uh-uh. It only makes sense if Ivy is the killer. It's not the presence of the marks that prove her guilt. It's the fact that she tried to remove them. District Attorney Jane is impressed. Everything Parker said makes sense, but is it enough to convict her? Especially if Ivy hires some clever defense attorney to throw sand in the jury's eyes. The DA doesn't think so. They need more, like a motive, something that could help improve premeditation. And most of all, DA Jane wants the murder weapon. If they could find that and link it to Ivy, then they've got her. Ideally, they'd like to catch her red-handed trying to dispose of it. Or maybe she'll lead them to it. All right, now, when Ivy Guyberson gets home, she finds that the police presence has been reduced to just a couple of officers. What she doesn't realize is that Detective Parker has given very clear instructions to those two remaining men. They're to watch her like a couple of hawks, waiting for her to give herself away. It isn't long before she does exactly that. One of the policemen notices her go repeatedly into the spare room. She's so blasé. One time, she doesn't even close the door properly. The officer peers through the gap. He watches her push a dressing table, turning it slightly. Every time she goes in, she moves it some more, so that eventually it's facing completely in the opposite direction. The side with the drawers is hidden away against the wall. Naturally, that makes the officer want to look inside those drawers even more. And that spare room, that isn't the only place that Ivy keeps returning to. The other officer sees her make a number of trips outside. He follows her at a discreet distance and watches her go inside a shed in the back garden. This happens like five times. After the fifth time, he decides to investigate. The shed's full of the usual clutter, but there's no sign of the one thing the policeman is looking for, the 38 caliber gun that killed William Guyberson. It's frustrating, but the operation to catch Ivy Guyberson isn't over yet. The two officers brief Detective Parker on Ivy's odd behavior in the spare room and the shed. It certainly looks suspicious, almost as if Ivy is inadvertently telling them where to look. Parker decides it's time to take the investigation to the next level. 
He returns to the house with the DA and a search warrant. The gloves are off. He wants Ivy to feel the heat for real now. Now, believe it or not, this is still day one of the investigation. Yeah, that's right. A lot's happened in a very short space of time. There's a lot more about to happen. The police start the search in the spare room, moving the dressing table away from the wall so they can look in those drawers, where they find a couple of things of interest. First, a man's wallet was William Guyberson's driver's license and business cards inside. There's no sign of the $700 Ivy said was in there. But just hang on a minute. Didn't she also say the thieves took William's wallet? I guess they stopped on the way out to hide it in his dressing table. Yeah, right. A second, they find some letters to Ivy from a man called Harold Gannon. They're not exactly passionate love letters, but to Detective Parker, this has all the signs of a classic love triangle. All right, so is this the motive they've been looking for? Ivy wanted William out of the way so she could be with Gannon. Or did it go further than that? Maybe Gannon was Ivy's accomplice. Maybe the two lovebirds cooked the whole thing up between them. The DA is pleased with the find. It helped his case a lot if he could prove a male accomplice for Ivy. At this period in American history, it's very unusual for a woman to be found guilty of a homicide Juries just don't seem to believe that the fairer sex is capable of cold-blooded murder, especially without a strong motive. A femme fatale, yes, they can buy that, but the dame would never pull the trigger herself. So for D.A. Jane, these letters are a major breakthrough in the case. Then, the D.A. pulls out one letter that on the face of it seems even more incriminating. In it, Gannon talks about some kind of insane act that Ivy was contemplating. Now, it's not clear what this insane act is, but the letter concludes with a sinister phrase. Please get that little quote-unquote something out of the house as soon as possible. Could the little something be Ivy's husband? Maybe it's just the gun that Ivy was intending to kill William with. Either way, Detective Parker has some questions for this guy, Harold Gannon. Just then, one of the other detectives interrupts with the news that Ivy has slipped out to visit the shed for the sixth time. Even though she knows the cops are on to her, she just can't stop herself. Detective Parker figures there must be something really important in there for her to take this risk something she wants to make sure is well hidden. Parker instructs the detective, get in there and turn the place upside down. At first, the detective finds nothing, but then he notices a narrow gap between two cupboards. He shines his flashlight in and sees, well, can't tell what it is, but there's something in there all right. The detective finds a length of thick wire and twists a hook in the end of it. Then he uses it to go fishing and hooks a gun, a 38 caliber revolver to be precise. 
If the bullet they found in the bed is anything to go by, it's the same kind of gun that killed William Guyverson. It looks like they've got the murder weapon. Meanwhile, Detective Parker's team continues searching the rest of the house, while Ivy sits in the living room, apparently unmoved by the commotion going on around her. She treats the police presence as a minor inconvenience and says nothing except to complain about the unfairness of her treatment to some friends from church who have come to comfort her. Even when the incriminating evidence starts turning up, she keeps her thoughts to herself. Though she can see the shocked expressions on her friends' faces, first, they find a couple of 38 bullets stuffed down inside a tin of coffee and wrapped in cloth. Seems like an odd place to keep bullets, don't you think? They also tip out a dirty laundry basket and find a gun holster in amongst the dirty clothes. The 38 from the outhouse fits snugly into it. The detectives leave no piece of furniture unturned. Ivy and her friends have to stand up and watch as the living room is made to look like a whirlwind has passed through it. Perhaps surprisingly, Ivy makes no effort to flee. After all, she knows better than anyone what they're about to find. And there it is. A ball of twine and a pair of scissors. Exactly the same as the twine used to tie Ivy up. Detective Parker confronts Ivy with their discoveries. She claims to know nothing about any of it. Her face remains as deadpan as ever. But there's one more surprise waiting. One of the detectives goes up into the attic and discovers two brand new morning dresses with the price tags still attached. Nothing says premeditation quite so much as buying a couple of funeral outfits while your husband's still alive. I guess she really wanted to look the part of the grief-stricken widow on the day. At around three o'clock on the afternoon of August 15th, 1922, Detective Ellis Parker arrests Ivy Guyberson for the murder of her husband, William. That's less than 12 hours after she first raised the alarm. As murder investigations go, it's a pretty quick turnaround. She's taken to Ocean County Jail, where Parker questions her for five hours straight. He wants a confession, so he tries to chip away at her story, but Ivy doesn't budge an inch. She claims that she's never seen the 38 found in the shed before then coolly tells Parker he won't find her fingerprints on it. It's true, but it seems like an oddly unemotional way to protest her innocence. In fact, throughout the grilling, Ivy remains remarkably calm, and Detective Parker gets nothing from her. The next day, the DA travels to New York City with a couple of detectives to pick up Harold Gannon. Gannon's happy to help with the investigation, and agrees to go back to Lakehurst to talk to Detective Parker. He tells Parker that last year he was working in Lakehurst as a construction supervisor. That was when he got to know Ivy. He claims their so-called relationship was all on her side. She was infatuated with him, and he even got his wife to write, telling her to leave him alone. 
Now, this blows a hole in the theory that Ivy killed William so that she could be with Gannon. There goes their motive. As for the actual night of the murder, Gannon has a cast iron alibi. Multiple witnesses place him in New York. He can't have been Ivy's accomplice. If she killed William, looks like she did it all on her own. So Detective Parker does some more digging. He talks to the people who knew William, including his sister, Nellie Bowers. She tells him an incredible story, one which casts a light on the strange relationship between Mr. and Mrs. Guyberson. According to Nellie, Ivy boasted that she'd gotten William a secret service job on top of his regular taxi driving. She claimed that he was working for a chief inspector at the Lakehurst Naval Air Station. His mission was to patrol the railroad station in Mount Holly, 30 miles away, on the lookout for a German agent with a poisonous gas formula. For this top secret work, he would be generously remunerated. But because of the secrecy involved, any communication with the chief inspector would go through Ivy. Every night, William drove out to Mount Holly, sometimes spending as many as 10 hours looking for the mysterious spy. He never found him, of course because the spy didn't exist. The job was bogus. Ivy concocted the whole thing and manipulated William into believing it. There was a real chief inspector, but when Detective Parker checks him out, he says he's never heard of William Guyberson or his wife. Two days before he was killed, William told Ivy that he'd had enough of being a spy hunter. He wanted to quit. Apparently, William had put in so many hours that he was owed $5,385. That's nearly $100,000 in today's money. He told Ivy to submit an invoice for the whole amount. But of course, there was no money because there was no job. Such a bizarre story and one which throws up so many questions. Why'd she do it? We'll never know the answer to that. But it seems like the kind of thing a sociopath would do, don't you think? She was controlling him, playing with him almost. And she got the house to herself while he was away. But how come William believed her? Well, don't we all want a little adventure in our lives? The biggest question of all is, could this be the reason Ivy Guyberson killed her husband? I mean, after all, she couldn't pay him the money she believed he was owed. Or maybe she just couldn't face being caught in such a strange lie. If so, it has to be one of the oddest motives for murder that Detective Parker has ever come across. Detective Parker keeps probing. He looks into the Guybersons' finances and discovers that Ivy had control over everything including William's own private bank account. She'd been siphoning off thousands of dollars into her own account while doctoring his statements so that he didn't notice the shortfall. At the time of his death, William believed he had over $2,000 in his personal account. 
Actually, he had less than $3 left. Maybe Ivy had to get rid of him before he found out she'd been embezzling his money. Maybe it was as simple as that. There's one other thing that Parker discovers as he looks deeper into Ivy and William's background. This isn't the first time Ivy's been the victim of a burglary carried out by two men. In fact, it's happened twice before. First time was back in 1909, when she was waitressing in William's restaurant. She was alone after closing time when two men forced their way in. In the ensuing struggle, one of the men put his hand over Ivy's mouth and she passed out, or so she claimed. Though the investigating detective is on record saying she made the whole thing up. Then it happened again, when the couple were married and living in Pine Street, Lakehurst. Ivy was alone in the house. Two men broke in and tied her up, making off with $200 of William's money. Kind of funny, isn't it? How she keeps attracting these thieving duos that no one else ever sees. Ivy's trial begins on October 11th, 1922. In those days, the prosecution wasn't obliged to share all the evidence it had with the defense team and D.A. Jane has been keeping his cards close to his vest. So it comes as a shock to Ivy's attorney when he learns that she's been embezzling from her husband and had conned him into thinking he had a highly paid secret service job. You can see his confidence in his client's case drain away as these facts are presented. He decides the only thing he can do is put Ivy on the stand herself. Given her cold demeanor, a risky strategy. As Ivy herself said in a press interview given a few days earlier, people think it awful that I didn't cry and faint and carry on. I've never cried in my life. I'm not the crying sort. Ivy denies everything, but she's unable to explain away the evidence the prosecution has presented. And then... The all-male jury takes four hours to reach a verdict. Guilty. It seems the delay wasn't over her guilt, but over the sentence. Four out of the 12 want the death penalty. The majority recommendation of life imprisonment prevails. As the judge sentenced her to spend the rest of her life in prison with hard labor, her face, as always, gives nothing away. Later in her cell, she maintains her innocence and vows to appeal. Her appeal is rejected, though she is released on parole after just 10 years. The case cements Detective Ellis Parker's reputation as a master detective. He'll go on to investigate 300 major cases, solving all but two of them. However, his long and distinguished career will end in disgrace when his obsessive drive to solve the Lindbergh kidnapping case, for once, places him on the wrong side of the law. But maybe that's a story for another day. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. We're in Moscow, Russia in 1910. Celebrated detective Arkady Koshko is called to Kursky Railway Station a train sits alone on a sealed-off platform in one of the first-class compartments 
there's a body waiting. The dead man's been stabbed in the chest, but the motive for murder seems unclear. The man has a monogrammed wallet and handkerchief in his pockets, as well as a silver cigar case, but there's no way of identifying him. It's a baffling crime scene with more questions than clues. Most investigators would be stumped. Koshko isn't like most investigators. Can Russia's greatest detective get to the bottom of the case before the killer strikes again? Join us next time on Detectives Don't Sleep for Murder on the Moscow Express.